All right. How is everybody doing? You may answer to yourself while you're sat in your car listening to this or on your commute to work or whatever, and I won't know your response, so I'm going to assume it was a good one. Um, this week is week six, I think, maybe? I don't know. I've lost count. Uh, and I'm going to do... I, I was about to say I'm going to do one of my favorite films. I feel like I've said that for every episode of this so far. That it, This is one of my favorite films. Uh, but this one genuinely is... Um, it's Martin Scorsese's The Taxi Driver. Um, I've been apprehensive to do a Scorsese or a Tarantino film because I wasn't sure how I wanted to do them. Did I want to like, you know, take up like 20 slots of doing these podcasts just dedicated to individual Scorsese or Tarantino films? Um, or did I want to do like one podcast about, you know, Scorsese's sort of overall work um, but I think what I'm going to do is just as and when I feel like it I'm just going to do a film from each of them because um, they are like I think that Tarantino is my favorite director Scorsese is a close second um, and I feel like I can talk about their movies for a long time so I want to try and not overkill it or just you know saturate my podcast market with only their work um, so I'm going to try and spread it out, and if anything, that'll just give the podcast some longevity. So anyway, we're going to kick off with The Taxi Driver now. Um, if you haven't seen it, you should, because good God, it's fantastic. Away we go. And of course, it goes without saying, spoilers galore, okay? Love the opening credits to this movie. I'm going to be saying I love a lot of this movie, because I do. But you get that like um, that sort of I don't know it's like a steam drain or something this big bellow of steam, and that kind of dun 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 of the like snare drum in the in the music in the background, it's all sort of like slow moey and almost a bit dreamscapey. Which if you know anything about the film or the tra- uh, the character Travis Bickle the character Travis Bickle, um, then it makes sense that he's sort of a bit dreamscapey and a bit detached. And then that smooth of like, I don't know if it's a trumpet or a saxophone or whatever, but it just has that like that New Yorky feel to it, you know. I've only been to New York once, and that was in like 2010 or whatever. So, you know, when I say it has a New Yorky feel, I mean that's based solely on like how Hollywood has presented New York in the 70s to me. <laughs> There's like a close up of. Um, the Absolute King, by the way, Robert De Niro, is the best actor ever. I will dispute that with anybody. You're entitled to have a different opinion. I just won't agree with it. De Niro is the best. So one of the reasons I, th- I think he's the best is because no matter what he does, he's always so ridiculously naturalistic in his approach to the art. Um, so we get this extreme close-up of just his eyes as he's sort of scanning things as he's driving um, with the sort of he has a look of sort of it's not like discontent it's just kind of he's confused at the things that he's seeing in a disappointed way you know Um, and then obviously that becomes more apparent as the story goes on he is he has a lot of content contempt Hatred. Let's use that word instead, because I know what that word means. For um, the society, you know, the way the how the city has turned out. Um, but I won't get into that just yet. And then we see from his perspective, you know, the rain-soaked windshield, and then all the images of the city that you can see on the other side of the windshield are like sort of uh, blurry, distorted neon lights and bright lights and and that kind of thing. So again, you st- we're still in that sort of dreamscape opening sequence it's just a very smooth way to bring us into it you know to get a try and sort of develop an understanding of who this guy is if you haven't seen the film before one of the first thing well the first scene that you actually see um travis bickle properly and he's interacting with the i don't know the the taxi driver manager or something i don't know he's the guy who tells you where you can drive and and whatnot what your area is going to be that you have to cover anyway so Scorsese does something quite interesting there early on, um, which he does a lot throughout the film in the sense that the camera doesn't stay static, right? So it's a pretty simple 
you know, rev uh, two shot reversal between the guy behind the desk and Travis Bickle. You know, um, the guy down on the desk is sort of shot from a downward looking angle, and then Travis Bickle shot from an upward looking angle, just to give the fact that demonstrates the fact a little bit better to the audience that he stood up and the guy behind the desk is sat down. Seems obvious, right? And then at a point in the conversation, Travis sort of makes a little bit of a joke. And then the guy's like, are you going to bash my chaps? How great was that? Shitty <laughs> New York accent. And he's like, are you going to bash my chaps? And then sort of gives him a little bit of a hard time. And it sort of takes Travis down a, a peg. But then instead of just cutting into close-ups of Travis, because it was on mediums before, instead of just cutting to close-ups of Travis, you, we actually see the camera move up and in on him, which, I don't know, sort of pulls the audience in a little bit more into, like, getting a, an understand. I don't know, it, in a way, it, it, I can't think of how to word it, but it does. it pulls you in a little bit more so that you're drawn into Travis's psyche and like how did he take sort of being spoken down to by his new boss and and that kind of thing um whereas I feel like maybe a, a clean cut between the mediums and then into the close-ups maybe wouldn't have sort of brought the audience into Travis's emotional shift even though it's not a big shift it's very subtle very subtle but I don't know if I didn't make that point very well just you know forget about it forget about it <laughs> There's a great um, pan shot around Travis Bickle's apartment as he does his opening narration because he's journaling all throughout the film. He's always journaling and the audience hears what he's writing down with uh, Robert De Niro's narration. And it pans around his apartment and we just see sort of how like derelict and unkempt it is. It's a bit disheveled, really similar to him, how he comes across. You know, his hair's a little bit greasy. It's all messed up. He hasn't taken his time to style it. His clothes are very simple. He's wearing like, you know, sort of not haggard jeans, but they're jeans that he's had for a while and his old army surplus jacket and all this kind of stuff. Like you can tell he's not bothered about presenting himself in a particular way to society. He's just, he's just existing. Um, and then the, they do a really cool shot where it sort of, as he's doing the narration and the voiceover and there's music in the background and things, we see the taxi moving through the city except mo half to a little bit more than half of the screen is taken up by like the left side of the sort of bumper and front wheel of the car and the camera's just rigged onto the side of it and then the other half of the screen is the things that the cam that the taxi's passing i don't know it's a weird shot i guess it because in the narration he's talking about how long hours he's working like six in the evening until six in the morning sometimes longer it's a long hustle, all this sort of stuff. So maybe the fact that the camera can't move away from the taxi enough to see the outside world is maybe some sort of representation of that, you know? He can't get away from his job. He doesn't want to get away from his job, but maybe that's what the camera's showing, is that he's so rooted into being this taxi driver and working this job that we can't escape away from it and see more of the world. I don't know, I was just thinking about that on the spot. But then there's a whole load of other like um, a whole load, a whole load, <laughs> a whole load of like um, other sort of close-up shots of this taxi and stuff. It, I, I, it's, maybe it's just to show this new vehicle that he's got, he's driving around in. And then all the while we might see like shots outside the windows and things of like the nightlife of New York. You know, there's like prostitutes, there's youths, there's you know neon lights and dirty movie theaters and stuff. You know, you're just sort of getting a glimpse of the underbelly of the city. It's like it's drip feeding us in, you know, to this to this underbelly. There's a lot of this film doesn't focus on people other than Travis Bickle, right? So he goes and he finishes his first shift. And he goes into a dirty movie theater, I guess, to blow off some steam or whatever he may want to do. Uh, let's not speculate or judge. And then, um, he starts talking to the cashier lady. He starts, you know, trying to get her name. She's not having any of it. You know, she probably sees creeps in and out of there all the time. Doesn't want to give out anything personal to them or whatever. Fair enough. Um, and it, the shot is like a um, a medium shot on both of them, uh, medium wide on both of them. And when she goes to call for the manager to sort of get Travis to stop pestering her, he then he 
he's like, oh, okay, okay, no worry, don't don't call the manager type thing. And that's the first time we cut to a close-up of just him. Um, so as soon as he sort of becomes uncomfortable or, you know, um, is overstepped the mark, it goes from the nice sort of encompassing of both of them wide shot to the more personal close-up. She gets a couple of close-ups, um, but it is mainly focused on him. And then when he goes to sit down in the movie theater, everyone else is like not in focus. They're all blurred out. And the camera sort of pans across, you know, one of the rows and sees him sat in the middle of one of the rows and everyone else is, like I say, out of focus. So it's it's working on, like, representing him as being isolated, you know, be it from his, like, social awkwardness in interacting with the cashier or, you know, being in a room full of people, but he's completely isolated. He's the only one in focus that we can see. Um, so it's just, again emphasizing that isolation and loneliness that he has again another example of the camera moving as opposed to using a cut is when they go to the palatine uh campaign office and we see um i can't remember his name the curly head dude sat behind a desk on the phone and then he's called over to um i can't remember her name yet either uh but it's sort of you know the person that travis bickle ends up fancying um, she calls the other dude over to her desk and then the camera just moves across the foyer with him as opposed to cutting from one desk to her desk. Um, I don't know why they do it or what it really says in that particular setting. Um, there's plenty of things that that sort of camera movement will say throughout this film very specifically. Um, in that movement, maybe it's to demonstrate the sort of hustle and bustle of the environment they're in and the constant movement. Um, I don't know. But either way, it's just nice. It's um, it's nice to have a moving camera, and it, it's not quite a one shot or a oneer, as they would say in the industry, um, which is you know a one continuous shot without any cuts, because there are cuts in that scene. But it's um, yeah, it's just an interesting way to do it. It's different. The scene where he goes to his uh, well to a cafe, um, where a few of his like taxi driver colleagues are, again is just like reinforcing his sort of discontent it's, I don't know if discontent's the right word but I'm going to keep using it for his discontent for like the ridiculousness of New York at that time be that you know the like I said the sort of the scummier type people coming up from the underbelly you know the, the druggies and the robbers and the criminals and stuff or um, his sort of contempt for um just pointlessness amongst people, you know, uh, no one achieving anything great. Um, so when he's there talking to these these guys, he's barely listening to the things that they're saying. They have a really sort of typical run-of-the-mill conversation when he gets there. They ask him, you know, sort of just everyday small talk. They're, that's what it is. He, he can't tolerate the small talk. He doesn't have any time for it. He doesn't care about it. He stops listening. He looks away. He stares off into the distance and then he puts like a um dissolvable tablet in his water and then scorsese does like a zoom in on the fizzling of the of the tab dissolving and like a, a close-up on de niro's stare as he's just like staring into this uh you know f the foam that the liquid's uh, creating as it dissolves and he's giving that so much more attention and time to develop than any of the conversation he's having with the other guys in the in the cafe so again it's just you know reinforcing that and a lot of the camera shots are quite odd as well you know like De Niro will just be like in the side or in the corner of the shot and then there'll be a lot of what would be considered empty space you know sort of behind him or anything like that I guess it's just sort of showing again his how disassociated he is from everything around him it's a really nice transition between um, after De Niro asks, um, the character's name is Betsy. I have since researched on IMDb, but her actor name is Sybil Shepherd. There we go. Yeah, so he um, basically asks her out and then he meets her outside for when she's on a break so they can go have a coffee, like a break from her work. And we're basically sort of following Travis pacing back and forth and then as she comes out of the building, he walks over to her. The camera stays where it was, but it just sort of watches them walk off together, you know, sort of leaving them to have their intimate moment. And then we cut to being inside 
the cafe where they've gone for their little mini date thing. They're sat in one end of the cafe and then the camera sort of tracks along towards them. So it's like pulling us back in, in between leaving Travis earlier and, and joining them now. It's just a nice transition to sort of have him walk out of frame and then the frame catch up to them once they're in the cafe. It's nice. It sort of shows a little bit of moment of time has passed, but then also shows that we were we're stepping into an intimate moment. And again, I don't mean, I've said this before in other podcasts, I don't mean necessarily intimate as in like, you know, really romantic or anything, but it's, you know, it's a private or personal conversation between the two of them and we're being invited into it by that movement of the camera. So then while they're on their little date, again, it's just, De Niro's brilliant. He's so good. He never oversells anything or tries to convince the audience of any particular emotion or thought he never tries to project onto how he wants the audience to feel he's just like hey i'm gonna be and i'm gonna do and it's gonna be natural or, or minimal or you know whatever he's just he's just there existing he's not doing anything and i mean that in the best possible way um because there's a lot of different beats in this scene you know, there's a beat where he's sort of um, saying that he doesn't like the guy that she works with. He's asking where she's from. You know, there's a few different beats and it jumps around and it jumps back and forth between them as well. You know, from like the lightheartedness to the I don't like the guy you're working with and, and so forth. And never once do you get the notion that he's like struggling to sort of make sure the audience has gotten to grips with those beat changes. He's just living the beats and again i know i've spoken about this before in other podcasts so i'll make it short but as the conversation gets a little bit more intimate in the sense that you know she compares him to this betsy compares travis to a, a song that she said like oh you remind me of this song and then we go from sort of either the wide on both of them or sort of mids uh covering you know their sort of torso and head to close-ups finally you know right over the shoulder of each of them doing close-ups as they're you know locking eyes and getting a little bit more into each other um it's just good you know it's it's nothing special or fancy going on with the camera work in there but it's all related to how the conversation's going and how they're bonding and things um and then they, they're both acting their little socks off Again, just another shining example of De Niro. Um, when he's in the taxi driving, um, <laughs> the taxi driver's driving. Uh, he's driving the Charles Pan Palatine, the, the candidate that uh, Betsy is, you know, sort of working for. Um, he's driving him around, and he's he asks uh, Palatine asks him, you know, what's one issue that he wants sort of dealt with, and then. Travis goes on a bit of a monologue about how they need to clean up the city. He says it's like an open sewer and there's, you know, so much scum and everything. We should flush it right down the toilet. But here's why De Niro is so good. It's because, you know, it'd be easy for an actor to fall into the, the plan, uh, sorry, fall into the trap of going like, well, I know my lines. I know I have to say X, Y, Z. So when he asks me what the issue is, I'm I'm going to say what the issue is. Whereas... In, in the dialogue, in the sort of build-up to his little monologue, he's like, oh, I don't really know what I would want you to do. I don't really follow um, political issues and things. And then he presses him, like, well, no, come on. What's one thing you would you would have me do? And then, he's, then he goes into it. You know, you've got to clean up the city. It's like an open sewer. But as he's saying all these things, it's like they're all fresh, original thoughts coming to him. He's not pre-planned it. He hasn't had it written down. He's not been rehearsing it in the mirror, you know? It's all fresh thoughts. And then when he finishes his speech, he's still got that energy. Like he could carry on talking more. Like maybe there is more to say, like, but he sort of holds himself back and, and lets what he said land, you know, he lets it, uh, lets it resonate in the air and you can feel the sort of everything he said, there's like a palpable energy behind it. But he doesn't like, when he finishes it, he's not like, mic drop, I'm done with my monologue, wow, give me the Oscar. It's not like that. It's, he's still in the moment. He's not like, okay, I'm done acting now because I finished talking. He's still in the moment. He's seeing how what he said has resonated with the people in the taxi. Um, he's just, he's the best. He's the best.
Then again, similarly to um, De Niro sort of staring at, staring? staring at the um, dissolving tablet in his drink when he was in the cafe, uh, there's that bit where the first time we see Jodie Foster, fresh off a of plane, Tallulah, in the uh, Bugsy Malone film, um, when she's like, well, I think she's like 14 in this? She, she started young and she's fantastic in this movie. But either way, we only see her briefly at this point. She gets in the taxi and then Harvey Keitel, who's a, sort of hidden under this giant pimp hat, we barely see his face. Um, he gets her out of the De Niro's taxi before they can drive off and chucks a crumpled $20 note in, in, the, in the passenger window. And it just sits on the front passenger seat. De Niro, De Niro sort of stares at it, doesn't pick it up. And then there's a few more New York-y transitions, you know, seeing all the the lights and the steam drains and this, that, and the other. And then he pulls into the taxi rank, um, like, I don't know, warehouse, garage, whatever. And again, he sort of looks down at the at the money. We see a close-up on the money. We see a close-up on De Niro, a close-up on the money. So we're getting him sort of, like, thinking about it. And it's just... the What I get from it is it's... It, does he want to accept the money from someone he knows is a bit scummy? Like, he knows it was a pimp that gave it to him. Does he want to... He's been talking earlier on in this film about how he wants the city cleared up from all the sort of scum and villainy type thing. So does he want to take money from someone like that? Also, it might be that money... It might be that it's money he didn't earn. You know, he didn't actually complete that that taxi fare for Jodie Foster. So is he in, entitled to that money? Is There's a lot of moral things at play here for him deciding what to do. Eventually he picks it up and puts it in his pocket, but... Yeah, I like that we get that that little moment there that Scorsese gives us of having him consider his moral obligations or, or, or needs. And then again, Nero doesn't oversell it. He just stares at it and lets the audience, you know, interpret what they think all of that means. Someone else watched it might have a different interpretation to what I've just uh, said mine is. But that's the beauty of cinema, that is. So then after... Um, De Niro and Betsy go on their second date, and um, well, it's called Travis and Betsy. <laughs> uh, they go to a, a dirty movie theater, and Betsy isn't having any of it, um, and pretty much calls things quits there. And then, so then we cut to De Niro at a pay phone, um, you know, calling her, sort of, I guess, trying to win her back. And the shot's really cool initially because it's. Um, it's, it's basically a wide, but De Niro's only taken up the like right half of the screen, except he's facing right off of the screen, you know, so he's not open to the the frame, as it were. He's got his, we can barely see his face. His, he's holding the payphone, covering his face from the audience. Like I say, he's looking off screen, um, and he's, you know, we only sort of see like his jacket and the side of his head, really. So we're not getting a lot of like, personal involvement from him and then the other half of the screen is just basically dead space you know it's other payphones it's a wall and things so it's really like unintrusive on De Niro and we're not being shown a lot as audience and De Niro's energy is really like fidgety you know he's playing with this pen on the uh, on the sort of tabletop there um, and he's shifting a lot as he's standing so we just get this really sort of like it's like we're peering in on on a on a private moment that we probably shouldn't be peering in on. Not like not saying he's having a wank or something, but you know he's just. It's an interesting frame, um, com, uh, combined with his energy. It's uh, it's just good. It's good cinema from Scorsese. And then the camera pans or moves um, to the right, leaving De Niro off screen. We still hear the dialogue. We still hear him having his conversation. But we stopped seeing him, and that's like, it's like we weren't really invited into that shot initially because of how I just explained how it's framed and how he stood, and then we're moved away from it. So it's like even the camera doesn't want to be around De Niro because you know he's being really uncomfortable and a bit cringy. But then also it re-emphasizes his his loneliness and his disassociation from everybody else. He is very lonely in this movie. You know, it's one of the sort of key points. Um, so even the camera doesn't want to be associated with him. You know, we even us as the audience, we leave him alone, just to, just as though so many other things in his life have left him alone. It's just masterful work from Scorsese. 
And then we get a Scorsese cameo from the man himself. Um, plays sort of like slightly disturbed, we'll say, um, character. And I know from, I think I watched an interview or special features or something about this. Um, but he asks De Niro to pull the cab over to the side of the road. And then De Niro, you know, flips out the meter thinking his fare's done. And then he's saying, you know, put the meter back down. I didn't tell you to put it up. Put the meter back down. I don't care. I'll pay whatever I have to pay. Just put the meter back down. And um, I know from watching the, it was an interview or special features or whatever, that um, because obviously Scorsese hasn't had too much acting experience at that point. He asks, uh, you know, for De Niro for help, you know, with that with that scene, so that it looks good. And he, I believe, the story goes that he says to him something like, "I'm not going to put the meter down until you make me put it down." So, you know, they will roughly improvise the dialogue and things, and it, you know, eventually does put the thing down. But it just what it does is it pulls out of Scorsese this. Um, he gets to really play as action. So if you don't know a lot about acting, that's really important when you're, whenever you're playing any part, any scene or anything, you have to have an action. And what that means is you have to have your intent for the scene. So if, if in this moment Scorsese's action is to make De Niro put the meter back on, then that's it. That's all he has to play. So then, then you can start using different things to to achieve that you could use intimidation uh he could be persuasive he could plead with him he could you know there's so many different things but all those you know you you could have a few of those sort of preloaded um of like things that you could try and do but it's also important to remain um organic so you you know what your action is you know certain things you can do to try and achieve that action but then when you're there, uh, you know, in the scene, what I mean by it needs to stay organic is you still need to roll with the punches. So if you start trying to persuade De Niro to put the meter back on and then he laughs at you, you might you might then instinctively be like, why is this guy laughing at me? And you might start to get a little bit annoyed at him. So then you might move to intimidation. But the point is you don't pre-plan what you're going to do or how you're going to do it and you especially don't pre-plan how you think the other actor is going to respond to you because you can't pre-plan that you know it's you have to remain open to how they respond to you and then respond respond organically in turn um anyway that's that's enough of that because i could ramble on about that for ages um but again in that in that scene de niro doesn't doesn't do a lot in the best way he's just because from his point of view, there's a psychopath in the back of his car talking about shooting someone with a forty-four Magnum. You know, talking about killing his wife who's cheating on him and things like that. And De Niro just has this look in his eye like he's... It's not like a deer in headlights, but it's like he's on high alert. You know, he's he's ready to potentially respond to something. But he's also at the same time maybe trying to hide the fact that he is on high alert and remain calm so as to not exacerbate the situation when there's a psychopath in the back of his car. It's just, it's expert. Because most of the dialogue, well, I think all the dialogue in that scene comes from Scorsese. None of it comes from De Niro. So he's all, he's just responding and expressing with his face and his actions. He's responding to how, uh, to the things that Scorsese's saying. And sometimes the camera will just focus on Scors uh, on um, well, sometimes it will focus just on Scorsese, but quite often it will focus just on De Niro as we hear Scorsese's rambling in the background. And it's a real, I don't know, it's just a, a powerful but interesting way to to shoot that scene. So we have a moment where De Niro is trying to talk to the other taxi driver, Wizard. Um, I can't remember the actor's name, but he's the dad in Everybody Loves Raymond. And he's sort of trying to express that he's, you know, having some dark thoughts in the sense that, you know, the the state of the city and his experiences and his life and, you know, his uh, lack of love interest and things is, is like getting to him. Um, but typical guys talking, he doesn't say a lot. He just sort of says, you know, I'm not in a great place or whatever. Um and then Wizard sort of gives him really vague, you know, 
unspecific advice to try and help him out and it doesn't really do anything but we do start to see the the unraveling of i don't know what you want to call it travis's patience or um his sort of sanity i suppose maybe it starts to unravel you know be that with the sort of slow-mo they call it mad dogging you know when people are staring each other out these you know these youths walk past him and he's sort of mad dogging each other for a bit um or in the sort of semi-crazed, almost teary-eyed, not teary-eyed in a crying sense, but teary-eyed like there's something bubbling underneath, um, is how De Niro looks when uh, when he's trying to get things off his chest to Wizard. Um, and then you think, oh, okay, well, maybe he's had this chat, maybe this did help him. And then as soon as Wizard gets in his car and drives away, the music kicks in, You know, the soundtrack of the film kicks in, and it's real like... Um, dark sort of minor tones sounding trumpets and things which just show that it hasn't helped he's still feeling very dark um, and now we're sort of left here as audience members like wondering okay well where where, where is this going to take him what's he going to do with all this these dark thoughts and this dark energy we get another little glimpse into um, the sort of state that Travis Bickle's in He's watching Charles Palantine uh, do an interview on TV and um, he's preparing his food and I'm pretty sure it's just like ripped up bits of bread that he drizzles maple syrup over and then sprinkles something else on it as well. So it's like he's getting like the bare minimum of sustenance. You know, and he's sat there with his, his shirt open and there's just no sort of care for himself be it physically or nutrition wise or you know his hair's again all disheveled and unwashed and he's just again he's just existing one of the things I love that this film does is as the psyche of Travis unravels and he gets more um tuned in to you know figuring out what he's gonna do uh, when he finally sort of snaps it, that's when he starts to get more organized so he starts you know exercising we have a small montage of him exercising with the voiceover saying you know, he's going to do 50 pull-ups every morning and 50 press-ups and he's going to eat right not stop taking pills no more destroyers of his body and that type of thing so like as you know the i don't know the sort of chaos behind his eyes increases he starts actually lining you know, like getting his ducks in a row a little bit more and everything else which is almost the opposite of what you would expect um and there's also really i, I skipped over it just then but there's also a, a when he goes to buy those guns from the traveling salesman um he you know we get to it's probably a bit typical now um in in films whenever there's you know like guns or whatever it might be, uh, but to sort of show them off, you know, like Scorsese does like a real s uh, slow pan across the 44 Magnum and stuff, and we get them all laid out nicely, you know, it's, it's almost like an advert in a way, um, but it's not, and then all the while, again, you've got the the salesman in the background going, oh, this is a beautiful gun, this is a really nice gun, you got to buy this gun, blah, 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 blah. doing all his salesman, salesman spiel, and Travis is barely saying anything to him, he's not giving him anything, he's, he's barely responding. I, don't know, I swear, like, the Travis Bickle dialogue in this movie must only fit on a couple of pages. He barely says anything, but he doesn't have to. And I guess it, again, sort of just reiterates his, you know, lack of appreciation for small talk or the other people in the film. It, you know, emphasizes his sort of disassociation from them all. One of the best monologues ever it's not that long you know like i said travis doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue in this film but it's the you're talking to me moment so he's staring into the mirror you know we we, we get a sort of semi montage of him you know testing out his guns and things like that but he's talking to himself in the mirror which i'm confident everybody under the sun has done and if you say you haven't i don't believe you um but I'm pretty sure it's improvised, um, you know, as the sort of stories from the set go, that it, it was 
an improvised monologue. But it's just, again, De Niro not overselling it. He's really there and he's really living what it would be like to be, well, not what it would be like, but how the character Travis would perceive some sort of confrontation going down, you know, where we, we've all had those moments where we might imagine how some sort of conversation or confrontation or argument or whatever is going to go down. Um, and you're always, you know, I guess the hero in it because he's, you know, he pulls his gun out quick and he's like, yeah, I'm faster than you, you know, and it's, I don't know, it's really hard to sort of put in, in words just how good that, that moment and that monologue is. I mean, there's a reason that it's like, you know, been parodied to death and everybody knows what it is because it's a fantastic uh, you know sequence um, and then again we go back to the narration as he's journaling and he's saying about you know that he's going to be the guy that makes the change but as he's talking with the narration he stumbles over his words and goes again and Scorsese does a clever clever thing where the images that we see as they're sort of moving with the the narration he stumbles over his words the image cuts goes back to what it was when it started the narration and then starts again Again, it's a little bit hard to explain, but I'm sure if you watch the film, you'll you'll see exactly what I mean. Um, but it's just that narration and the journaling sort of mirroring the life and stuff. I guess it shows that he's not entirely stable <laughs> um, and he's working things out as he goes, really. Um, you know, and ultimately spending a lot of time talking to himself, which just reinforces his mental state. We have another moment of De Niro or Travis watching TV. Uh, he's watching people dance. He looks um, completely out of it. You know, it looks like he's not taking in what's happening on the screen. He's lost in his own little world, and he's constantly holding a uh, the magnum, the the gun, up to the side of his head, not pointing at his head. He's just sort of holding it. So it sh I guess it's sort of there to show that. He's more focused on the, you know, the the schemes he's got in his head. And when I say schemes, I mean like his plan to sort of try and, and you know, bring vigilante justice to New York. Um, he's more concerned with that than like having fun and dancing like a lot of other 20-something-year-olds his age that he's watching on TV, you know. So again, it's the second time we've seen him sort of sat in his apartment alone watching TV and he's much less engaged with, what's happening on the TV than he was the first time. So he's again getting further and further away from the rest of society and reality. Third time, Travis is watching TV in his room by himself. Again, gun in hand. A lot of the shots as well, there's been a few in between um, this and the last TV scene I was speaking about where he's in his apartment alone or whatever and he's always got either the guns in hand or strapped you know, to his sort of torso in holsters and things like that he's always got them to hand which just sort of says that you know he's like a he's a hair trigger moment away from springing into some sort of vigilante action you know he's he's a little scanning um but yeah this third scene where he's watching tv again is this is the one where he starts rocking the tv back and forward He's, he's looking at it, but again, he's got that thousand-yard stare going on. He's not really taking it in, and he's rocking it back and forth. Eventually, it tilts over and, and smashes on the floor. So it's symbolic of almost like um, a breaking point between him, you know, um, tolerating, you know, society in that sense of, like, you know, be it small talk or crappy daytime TV or films or you know, whatever, he, he just, he's looking for something more real and, and palpable, and he wants to make a real change, not like a, you know, just a sort of platonic or everyday kind of reality that everyone else is just absorbed in, if that made any sense. I love whenever De Niro gets to act with Harvey Keitel. Um, one day I'll cover Mean Streets, um, which has so many brilliant moments between them. Um, but then the scene where uh, Travis Bickle is um, sort of pretending that he's interested in, um, you know, Jodie Foster, because she's basically an underage prostitute in this movie. Yeah, it's pretty dark, yeah. Um, 
but he sort of pretends to be interested in her services so that he can you know get inside the uh the building where you know those diabolical things happen um because it, you know this becomes relevant later on in the film um but he gets to, he speaks to Harvey Keitel outside who's the pimp uh and they have such good chemistry together you know be it when they're improvising which i think a lot of the dialogue in this scene may have been improvised um but they're so good at playing off each other be it in a like friendly way or a confrontational way or or whatever they're so good at playing off of each other i love it um because they're both so natural and they roll with the the punches of the scene like whatever the other one brings they'll respond to it organically and it's just great it's just great and then as um jodie foster leads de niro into the building you it's one of those you know sort of big new york um apartment block type things and in the background a, a police siren gets louder and louder with its like wailing siren as the camera stays across the up the other side of the street watching them go in and then it sort of tracks upwards as the siren wails louder and louder not only sort of um suggesting that they're moving up there's in de niro and um jodie foster are moving up inside the building but also it with the siren wailing where we're sort of looking up at this towering building it just gives a sense of like malice you know uh, sort of almost like a impending doom type thing it's just a, a good way to sort of create that um that visual tension tension <laughs> so after de niro chats to jodie foster for a bit and um you know, instead of, as they say in the film, making it, which means, you know, doing the deed, because um, he's not there to do that, he's there to try and save her. Um, so we get to see, you know, the the tolls that that sort of life is taking on uh, Jodie Foster's character. But then as De Niro leaves, um, obviously everyone there who works in that organization thinks that they have done the deed. So this like guy comes out to collect payment and it's a really ominous shot. As De Niro leaves the, the room that they're in, you see a shot down the corridor and the end of the corridor is pitch black and then this like old creepy man just starts walking towards the camera from from the darkness and the uh, the music's all ominous and you know, monotone and creepy and dark. It's just a very uncomfortable moment. Um and then Travis finally gives back that crumpled $20 note that um, Harvey Keitel threw in his taxi earlier on. So it's like he's given it straight back to them. Um, and the guy's like, yeah, thanks. Come any, come back any time, cowboy. And De Niro's like, oh, I will. And it just sort of gives that foreshadowing of, uh, you know, what his ultimate plan is. When uh, De Niro and Jodie Foster are having their um, sort of, it's the second meeting that they have, but they're in a cafe, and they, I I think I heard in it was an interview or something. Um, sorry, I'm really not on my thoughts today. I think I need coffee or maybe one of those like alpha brain pills that uh, that Joe Rogan has. <laughs> so sorry if a lot of this has just been like incoherent rambling. Um, but they're in the cafe, and I think I remember reading in, or maybe watching an interview again or something, and Jodie Foster was talking about how, because uh, bear in mind, she was quite young when they filmed this, in a relatively inexperienced, um, and you're you know, opposite De Niro, who at this point has already been, um, I think, nominated and won an Oscar for The Godfather Part Two, So... You know, uh, it's a bit of a difference in their experience. Um, and I think he said that they would rehearse and he would just ask her, uh, you know, random questions, just normal stuff like, uh, where'd you grow up and who, what do your parents do and that sort of stuff. And then just start bleeding in to that normal... Com to, this was to sort of drop her guard, you know, make her more comfortable with talking to him um, so that it could flow more naturally. And then he would start bleeding in... Um, bits of the actual dialogue from the scene um and it, it has like a real ni nice natural flow to it and again like i said before de niro is so natural in everything that he does that when he's he goes on a bit of a sort of verbal tirade slagging off um harvey Keitel's character as you know the pimp harvey Keitel. um 
and he he wants to sort of just like lay waste this spew of insults to him but he you know he sat opposite a minor so he starts watching his tongue and you know making sure he doesn't say anything too drastic and he like sort of stutters over his words a little bit and it's just it comes across so unrehearsed which is exactly what it should be because the moment you realize that an actor's acting or like they've practiced delivering these lines then the facade of you know it being a sort of fictional thing that we're watching or a movie or even if it was a play or a tv show whatever it is any actor doing something like that as soon as it becomes apparent that they are like delivering this well-rehearsed monologue or whatever then straight away the audience sees that it's bullshit um and that's one of the things De Niro is great at is making every line of dialogue just sound like it's exactly what that character would say and how they would say it in those given circumstances and especially off of whatever energy or output or emotion that his opposite actor is giving him and then again as well for Jodie Foster like she's absolutely fantastic in this film like for someone so young to be going completely toe-to-toe with De Niro it's like she's a great actress I love the reveal that they give De Niro after he shaves his hair into a mohawk which only just occurred to me I heard somewhere that apparently one of the um signals that someone is like you know going off the bend a little bit is that they shave everywhere like normally it's like shaving eyebrows and and all this stuff um so maybe that's why they decided to go with him shaving his hair into a mohawk but um, so there are uh, uh, Palantine, you know, uh, what they call it, like he's doing a speech in a, a public area for all these people. And um, we see De Niro get out of his taxi, but we only see him, it's like a mid shot, but it's sort of torso to knees kind of thing. We're not seeing his head. And then um, there's another shot where it pans across like a body of people watching Palantine give a speech. And again, it's middle shots. We're not seeing anybody's head. Then we get to De Niro, and we know it's De Niro because he's just got out of the tax, and we've seen him wearing his like uh, army surplus jacket. So we see him doing that. He pulls some a tablet out of his pocket, and then as his hand goes up to put it in his mouth, then the camera follows him up, and then we get the reveal, and he just looks like a you know kind of like a kind of skinhead psycho type thing. And uh, I, when everyone's clapping and cheering at the things that the uh, that Palatine is, is saying De Niro claps along as well and it's like this weird kind of sarcastic clap that he has it's really it's like unnerving like you've got to be a great actor to make clapping unnerving you know and finally we get to uh, the vigilante rampage so there's a really great one at the start which is a, a one shot where there's no cutting uh, where we see De Niro get out of his taxi, walk over to Sport, a.k.a. Matthew, a.k.a. Harvey Keitel. They have a little bit of a conversation. Again, it's probably relatively improv based around like a loose script because De Niro and, and sorry, De Niro and um, Keitel are great at those, those sorts of uh, dialogue exchanges. And then he, you know, shoots him in the stomach. The camera stays more or less in the road. So we see him like, go from his taxi in the road over to them keeps on a sort of I guess it's a wide on both of them and then you know sort of pans back with De Niro as he goes over to the the steps of the main sort of prostitute house brothel that's the word brothel not prostitute house and then the cuts start you know as he walks in um shoots the guy in the hand that was collecting the money and then we see his hand absolutely explode because he shoots him with a uh was it a 37 Magnum or something that Scorsese was talking about before when he was in De Niro's cab about what it can do to someone when you shoot them with that? So then we see that happen, which is the, what rule is it? I think it's a uh, Hitchcock rule that if you, his rule or his expression was something like if you have a, a, a revolver or a gun or something um, above the bar in one scene then in act two or act three you have to use it so the very fact that Scorsese was talking about the effects of this magnum and then De Niro or Travis Bickle actually makes a point of purchasing a a magnum off of a uh, arms dealer then we have to see it in action so then we get the payoff of that being done in action and there's a little bit of a shootout it gets really bloody and violent blood spurts everywhere and stuff 
um, and it's it's almost like a shock to the system because there's not really been much violence so far throughout the film, at least not very bloody. And then all the gunshots like rain rain out through the the corridors, like big echoey gunshots. It's just like you know, Travis has been so sort of quiet and subdued throughout the whole film that now for the soundscape to just be like loud with each gunshot but no music or anything happening in the background it's um it's quite sort of jarring and then travis pickle tries to shoot himself in the head afterwards but you would just hear the click 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 from the mt magazine he tries a different gun click 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 you know so he's a bit battered and bruised he took a couple of shots himself in that firefight and like he finally achieved what he wanted to achieve in the sense that he's like bought some sort of vigilante justice and done his bit to clean up the streets and then he feels that his like life's mission or his purpose as to why he was here on the earth is done so he doesn't need to be here anymore so he tries to kill himself but something's keeping him around a little bit longer so then as the police come in you know obviously investigating all the the carnage and the gunfire De Niro is sort of slumped on this sofa um having done his deed and the ominous music start you know that trumpet score starts up again and as the police officer points the gun at De Niro you're like oh my god is this uh is he about to take him out and then we get a close an extreme close-up of De Niro's blood-soaked hand and then it we follow his hand with the camera we follow his hand move up to his head as he puts his like uh forefinger to the side of his head in the shape of a gun and goes like it's like he's asking the police officer to shoot him he's not afraid of dying anymore and he just has this expression on his face that's like satisfied with what he's done he doesn't care anymore it's really interesting and like it's just so eerie to watch and then we get a real kind of it's a classy shot it's a bird's eye view shot of the room but then it's not classy because on what it does is it slowly tracks over the like uh, the carnage that Travis Bickle was left in his wake, you know, all the sort of dead bodies laying all over the floor, blood everywhere and, you know, furniture that they've fallen into and smashed up and things. It's, um, it's just sort of like going over the, the waste that he's laid to this uh, to this brothel. And then uh, to uh, sort of wrap it up at the end there, there's... It goes back to the sort of dreamscape thing, you know, where he's driving around in this taxi and, you know, we see all the, the bright lights of New York City and things as he goes past. Um, yeah, it's, I feel like I didn't um, explain a lot of my points too well on this podcast. Like I said, I'm a little bit tired. It's the bank holiday weekend, sue me. Um, but if you haven't seen Taxi Driver, you should, because it's fantastic. It's one of Scorsese's best. It's one of De Niro's best performances. Um, I never get tired. That's I don't know how many times I've seen it now. I never get tired of watching it. Um, but yeah, hopefully I helped unpack some of what makes that film great. Um, and yeah, that's it. I'm done. Done skis. Bye.